Howdy listener, welcome to Molecule to Market, or as usual, we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. I'm your host, Roman Tagal, and in today's episode, I'm going to be talking about the pharma and biotech supply chain with Michael Kalellis, who is Chief Executive Officer at MyCart. Mike was a really terrific guest, someone I'd not met before or spoken to in the past, so um, it was great to meet him and just find out his journey to the roles that he does today. Fascinatingly, he grew up in and around Boston as the biotech boom really started, and it was great to hear his journey and what it was like being in that kind of, uh, you know, booming environment of startups and biotechs in Massachusetts uh, in the early days and. He's had a you know a, a career that's spanned almost four decades, and he talks about his playbook of rebuilding and revitalizing businesses, which is really really fascinating for anyone that's in the M and A space and and anyone that's just genuinely interested in how you transition companies from say a family owned business to something more commercial. Uh, towards the back end of the interview, you'll hear some really really fascinating trends that he picks out uh, regarding digitization um, that will no doubt impact us. Uh, globalization and onshoring, he also talks about that will impact CDMOs in the future. Uh, I'd not heard of one of these before, so we'll listen out uh, for that. I asked Mike about the role of, of mid-market CDMOs and whether they get lost amongst the specialists in the big guys. And he really eloquently addresses that point and and talks about where mid-market CDMOs fit in uh, as a real value add for pharma and biotech companies. For background, Mike has spent his uh, entire career in the public and private life science space where he has successfully implemented commercial and operational growth strategies. Prior to becoming CEO at MyCart, he has held several senior roles um, in various companies, uh, and co-founder and chief executive officer at Bio, sorry, Boston Biosystems. And he was also the VP of business development at KMC Systems, as well as several roles at GE Healthcare. His experience covers a range of different technologies, uh, including, you know, a small molecule, radio, pharmaceuticals, gene expression, uh, medical devices, and et cetera, et cetera. I could go on. He is, uh, yeah, a really, really interesting guy. Uh, fantastic to meet him and uh, certainly hope you enjoy today's episode and if you haven't already one favor give us a little rating today that would be very kind and maybe share today's episode with a colleague take care enjoy today's show we are proudly supported by Zymewire, which is a leader in actionable sales intelligence for life science business development professionals. In fact, thousands of life science BD professionals start their day with sales signals from Zymewire. And because you listen to Molecule to Market, you can have a free go at the platform. Just go to tryzymewire.com. That's tryzymewire.com. Hey, Mike, welcome to Molecule to Market. Hey, Raman, glad to be here. Absolute pleasure to have you on on the show. So, Mike, just to start off with, please give our listener a, a bit of a backstory of you, uh, your career, and, and how you ended up as the head of MyCart. Sure. Well, it, it all started, I suppose, with uh, with a little bit of luck in that I was 
born and raised in Boston, Massachusetts. And just at the time that I was graduating university, the Boston biotechnology market boomed in front of me. So for many of us from that time, uh, we were blessed to have plenty of opportunities with a number of companies, some of which are household names now um, in the Boston and Cambridge, Massachusetts area. So coming from here um, and being educated here, uh, my career started here. And my career uh, started with some companies that are still with us, uh, such as Millipore, now Millipore Sigma, and GE Healthcare, and Sepracore, and a variety of different uh, technologies, everything from life science instrument development to gene expression analysis to oligonucleotides, uh, and of course, large molecule biologics, as well as now small molecule biologics. So it was a a very uh, target-rich environment to grow up in, and, and that benefited me uh, in my career. Uh, during that time, uh, I look back now especially, and there were a fair amount of contract manufacturing organizations in my past. And I started my uh, career with DuPont making radio pharmaceuticals, uh, but then quickly moved on to monoclonal antibodies. Um, and, and today, you know, everyone knows the success of monoclonal antibodies, but in those days, it really was the early, early times, uh, and very exciting place to be. And, uh, as well as, uh, small molecules, I say in biologics. So when it came time, you know, 40 years later, uh, hard to believe that I've been in this industry for nearly 40 years now, um, my cart was looking for a CEO. Uh, they had recently been acquired by a private equity firm, and um, my background is apparently what they were looking for. So uh, they, they gave me uh, a primer on the company, and I fell in love with the story, which I'm happy to relay to you if you ask. Um, and uh, from there, um, it, it was easy. And so in the fall of 2018, I joined MyCart, which is headquartered in Atlanta, not in Boston, uh, which means my life is a good portion of my life is spent on the road traveling back and forth. I'm going to ask you about why you fell in love with my car in just a moment, but I'm just one of the questions I was really keen to ask you, and you, you kind of started talking about it is, well, how was it being in Boston in during the last 30, 40 years and watching that change in the city? And, um, you know, obviously a place I'm personally very fond of, but I suppose, you know, someone like myself who moved to Boston when it was very established as, you know, the global place for drug development. And, but what was, but it wasn't always like that. Right. And I'm just love you to tell the story about how, how you've almost seen the region develop in the time that you've, you've spent most of your life there. Yeah. Well, it was a very volatile environment. I mean, we were all very young and starting our careers. So we probably didn't realize how much volatility was around us, but that was the time where, uh, a professor, typically out of a notable university, uh, would have an idea, uh, be able to raise some money, and around that would start to incubate uh, a company. And in doing so, they needed uh, labor. They need a lot of technicians. And so they turned to the scientific community and students like myself. And we ended up working for a number of those types of startups. And when, when that happens... Uh, you are introduced to a, a, a wild diversity of technologies, as well as a large diversity of management styles. 
uh, you know, some academics were excellent managers, some were not. And you had to cope with the human resources side of that challenge as well as the technology side. But um, eventually, some of those startup, startups took root. And uh, companies that today uh, people will recognize, like Genzyme, I, re- I remember getting a, an interview uh, opportunity to work for this company called Genzyme. Had no idea who they were. Uh, they needed someone to help make some simple solutions. And it's amazing to think that it started from that humbling moment all the way up to the Genzyme that we all know, which ultimately today is owned by uh, Sanofi. Uh, and the same thing with Biogen. And uh, so there were a whole host of companies like that. And it all just sort of um, bloomed in front of all of us. Uh, a lot of failures. A lot of people working for an organization and find themselves out of work in two years because of lack of funding or a drug development program failed in clinical trials. And we would just simply move on to the next one, which was no problem because there were so many around us. So it was it was an amazing time. And, and I think the older I get, the more I appreciate how amazing it was. Uh, when you're in it in the moment, it just happens to be the matter of course. It's just the daily environment. But But now looking back on it, it truly uh, was an amazing environment to be part of and grow up in. Yeah, and that's that's really interesting to hear from you because actually that was my, it's almost when you're in the, to your point there, when you're in the moment in such a fascinating bubble of growth, you don't necessarily realize until you look back and be like, man, that was was a good place to be at that point in your career where you could have that level of experience. And obviously, fast forward to today and, you know, being the president of my car and you mentioned, you know, you fell in love with the story. Please tell us the love story, but and also just, you know, about my car. You know, our listeners have not heard of you guys and what you do. Give us a bit of an overview of what the company does and, and who you serve. Sure. Well, a little context prior to that, it's, it's interesting because it ties in together, is during that prolific time I described in Boston, um, I, I had my uh, background and degree at the bachelor level. I was not a senior scientist, but I found out very quickly that the scientific community really didn't get along with, in terms of language they speak, with the financial community and vice versa. So every time someone needed to manufacture something or there was a business challenge that needed to be done, they were looking for volunteers and I kept raising my hand. So I was able to position myself between the financial world and the technical world. And I did that for nearly 20 years and my career went along with that growth. Fast forward to a variety of other opportunities prior to my cart where people started to say, we need someone to help us rebuild this company, or we need uh, someone to run this division that isn't doing so well. So someone with my background, understanding both communities, the financial one and the technical one, was able to fill those roles. And and fortunately for me, uh, I enjoyed doing that. So uh, the phone rang one day, and it it was the private equity firm that had acquired my cart, and they were looking for someone to run it. And uh, fortunately, in the community that I just described, word of mouth and referrals are usually the way you find these opportunities. Although they're advertised, it, uh, it, it helps to, to know a fair amount of people who trust you. So they told me the story of MyCart, and it's very simply this. MyCart is a 47-year-old uh, family-run business up until the point of acquisition in 2018. The family were Cuban immigrants 
And the mother of, uh, of the, the mother and father and uh, mother situation that came from Cuba, the mother was a pharmacologist, which was quite unusual for the day to have, uh, you know, a woman in that kind of senior management role. Well, now it's quite common, but in the 1960s and early 70s, it was not. And she was one of the first people to uh, look at an existing drug and modify its dosage form and start to file what eventually became ANDAs and, and create this drug portfolio. And of course, that led to contract manufacturing, of which there are of, of quite a few companies that are into the packaging and uh, contract manufacturing business in the southeastern United States. So that were the beginnings. And they went along quite happily for a few decades on, uh, until the son uh, found himself on the threshold of 80 years old. Uh, times had changed. Uh, there were some business challenges that he realized uh, he didn't have the runway in his career um, to address. So he decided to sell the business. And when I heard that story, being a very family-oriented person myself, it just resonated with me that there were you know, almost 200 people at my cart who had revered their owner um, all these years. He had taken very good care of them. The company had been quite successful. They stayed small by design. He never wanted to be a large CDMO. And uh, now he's at the point where can I hand this over to someone I can trust? And, and I just felt that I could help them. And so it was for those reasons that I said, I wanna do this. Uh, much more so than the, the financial upside that we saw eventually. The original attraction was just the family story. And so just so I understand, I mean, what a, what a great story that is anyway. So um, the private equity company, which I believe is, is it Nordic Partners in my research, when they purchased the company, is the, is the son still involved in the business now or is it, or as, as, is it still, you know, any, you know, in, involved at all, or is it now? <laughs> it's now the baton has been passed to you to to take the business forward. Yeah, no, he was uh, clearly at the at the end of his uh, tenure there at Mycard, uh, being being in his late seventies, almost eighty years old at the time. So he is not uh, involved. And what we've done is uh, reassess the marketplace when we got there. Uh, hired almost an entirely new management team. Uh, many of the former management team were retiring. So we needed to replace them anyway. Um, so we rebuilt the management team. Then we rebuilt the middle management with people that had considerable pharmaceutical manufacturing experience, some of whom from the large uh, CDMOs uh, that are out there, Catalan, Patheon, Cambrex and such, uh, and reestablished the company uh, that way. So he's no longer involved, uh, but it's been fun to restructure and reorganize the business for growth. Well, you said rebuild earlier on, and it's just funny some of the, you know, your background in terms of financial and technical. Like you have the interesting hybrid experience to be able to see things from different perspectives and actually do all of this work. And I have to ask about the like, the, how was the culture? How's the culture evolved in that? Because often when you see private equities purchase acquire companies, the culture can change quite quickly. But it wasn't just about the private equity company. In your case, it was taking you know, a family owned and run business with a, I imagine the previous management and team had ways of doing things that were, were not necessary in keeping with the, with where you wanted to take the business. That must, I'm guessing that must have been quite a challenge for you to, 
to navigate that and how has that kind of impacted the culture of you being able to retain some of that DNA, uh, you know, from the, from the previous owners? Yeah, well, that's a great question because I, I've done this now several times. Uh, the last count, I think it is actually a seven exactly where I've been asked to join an organization and revitalize it. Um, uh, so this was nothing new to me, but uh, the, what you do, at least what I do, the first step is first you have to respect the organization that is in place. If you join a company like this and you come in with a, uh, an attitude that you're going to change everything very quickly and change the culture quickly, if it has to change, then you very easily uh, can lose control of the organization. It's, it's always best, I find, to come in and respect what was there and then study it. Take the time to meet with the people that have been there for a lot longer than I have and talk to them about why things are the way they are why they perform certain assays the way they do, why they have procedures written the way they're written, why their customer base is the one that they have enjoyed all these years. And once you understand that, then you can start making changes. And that, that first period takes about 12 months. It's almost a full year to study a new organization. So uh, that's what we did. And the phrase you know, well, we do it because that's the way it's always been done is, is one that we, we always remind and joke about and say, no, that's remember, that's not what we're going to do. We're going to open our minds up and say, what should we do? Um, what does the market want today that the company perhaps was not addressing, but uh, was still behaving in a manner that the market wanted 15 years ago? So that, that's how you start doing that in, in changing cultural behaviors uh, is by being respectful first. After that phase, you enter a different phase where you start to implement uh, a new way of thinking. And that can be done also very gradually. Uh, one person once told me that the management style is more like someone trimming a bonsai tree. Um, you know, you clip here, you clip there, and before you know it, you have something that looks vastly different than what you started. And when I say clip, I'm not referring to financial cuts. I'm talking about molding behavior and bringing in new processes uh, that perhaps the company just simply wasn't doing. Um, so that, that, that's how it's done. And, and now we're three and a half years into it and the organization is very different. Customers have told us it's very different than it was before. That's amazing. And yeah, and thank you for sharing that. I was jotting down some notes as you were talking. These are, these are good tips <laughs> as a young business person to learn in life from someone who's got your experience about how to some of, I suppose, the phases that you talked about, about rebuilding and re revitalizing uh, a family. And it sounds like the clipping and the trimming is, it has, a, I suppose, a look and feel of the business is now different for the market, but its core probably remains quite similar in some respects that, you know, whatever made that business successful in the first place still remains, you know, in the root, if we take the tree <laughs> analogy, which I think uh, it's not an easy thing to navigate and I've seen lots of businesses get it wrong. And you, you, you mentioned obviously the market that you, you know, and my understanding is you are primarily in the small molecule kind of space and um, which is obviously a, a global market, but an increasingly competitive market. So how is the last couple of years been, so it's been three years since you've been there and obviously we've, you've had COVID <laughs> to deal with as well, which I'm sure has made things a bit more interesting, but has it been a good time for the business? Have you seen growth? Um, are there more opportunities for, for businesses like yours that obviously have very specialist capabilities? 
Yeah, well, it's 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 been a challenge, as you say, because of the pandemic in particular. But uh, fortunately for us, uh, we were able to put a strategy in place, um, a playbook, if you'll think of it that way, that has worked for me in a number of places. And we did the same thing here at MyCart. I'll describe that in a second. But what it has resulted in is we had a very successful 2020 in terms of winning new projects. And we had a very successful, even greater than 2020, we had a good 2021. So uh, the strategy that we employ and how we did that is to never forget the technology. The grassroots relationships and um, innovation that's going on out there is where we wanted to stay close to. Uh, Some CMOs uh, that have been around a long time uh, ignored that. They don't know they ignored it, but they essentially did because they would be hired by somebody to make a batch of capsules or a batch of tablets. And they would simply do that and do it well and get paid for that. And life went on. But markets change and technologies change. So in our particular space, you know, more complex oral solid dose uh, products started to evolve and emerge And if you were not preparing for those more complex products to come along, um, something like mini tabs, for example, uh, bilayer tablets, uh, things with multiple active ingredients in them as opposed to just one, um, you weren't preparing for those over the last few years, then you found yourself at a distinct disadvantage. So what we've done is focus on our R&D group. We focused there first. You'd think we'd focus on Uh, manufacturing and bringing in more customers, which of course is important as well. But we started out, the the, the tip of the sword was R&D. We call it PDS, Pharmaceutical Development Services, as many CDMOs do. And uh, there we rebuilt our formulations team. We hired a new vice president of PDS. We restructured the organization that was there, some very talented people, made some of them supervisors, others team leaders, really um, beefed up our analytical development capabilities. And we found, of course, when you do that, that you'll attract a clientele that is a little bit different than the clientele that just simply wants you to make a batch of tablets. So by doing that, it gave us something to talk about. It gave us something to discuss when we go to DCAT and AAPS. And people started to recognize that MyCart is a uh, value-added mid-market CDMO that has core competencies that are significant enough to help them with their significant drug development problems, but also has the commercial manufacturing capability to take them uh, to the commercial markets, just not through clinical trials. To hear it like that, it sounds very simplistic, but it took took one year of the studying the organization. It took another six to eight months of doing some primary and secondary market research what do the customers want? What are they asking of people like us? And then what is MyCart capable of doing given that knowledge that we accumulated? Uh, because we can't be all things to all people. And so that's what we did and it worked, it worked well so far. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. We are proudly supported by Zymewire, which is a leader in actionable sales intelligence for life science business development professionals. In fact, thousands of life science BD professionals start their day 
with sales signals from Zion Wire. Because you listen to Molecule to Market, you can have a free go at the platform. Just go to tryzymewire.com. That's tryzymewire.com. You said something really interesting, which is you know value add mid market CDMO. Uh, do, do you find at times you mentioned obviously you've got the Catalans, the Thermos, the Cambrexes, the kind of the real giant CDMOs in the market. You know maybe half a dozen. And then there's a, there are a lot of smaller specialist players dotted all over uh, Europe and the US in particular. And then there are a handful of what I would class as mid-market CDMOs. Do you do you guys get lost sometimes in the middle? And what I mean by that is, um, and please challenge this. Is, it's not an assumption. It genuinely, uh, I always look at it from a customer's perspective. They either want a big, big, you know, <laughs> calend, or they want a real specialist that can do... Uh, you know, real small batches and, you know, very specialist technology. And you might fit into that kind of bracket more than more than the bigger one. Is there a is there sometimes a danger that you kind of get a mid mid market kind of mid size CDMOs get lost in that? Or is that not something that you guys have found because maybe you're always invited <laughs> to pitch? No, it's it's a it's a very good point. Um, and I wouldn't say that we get lost because we're aware of it. Um, when you're not aware of that phenomenon is when you can get lost. But the challenge for our business development team is to filter through the opportunities and the leads so that we can um, continue and navigate on the course that we've selected for ourselves and not get lost. But to the point you just made, there are some of our customers that will come to us and have that do not want to work with large organizations because they're just simply too big. Their program is too small for some of the big guys. They can't get their attention. With a mid-market company, um, you're important to us and we're large enough to serve their needs. So we find that that's a very good natural relationship. And those are the customers that we're trying to identify. The very small customers, some of the startups, you have to be a little careful there because many of them are cash constrained. And even though they need services, they really can't afford them just yet. Um, so you, you have to be careful and have the right balance. And for those, you know, we say, well, this is a strategically important program. What they're trying to do could be very, very special. We want to be involved. And we may decide to make an investment in that, uh, in that company, not, not monetary and by equity. I'm talking about, well, let's do some work for them and adjust our business terms so that they can afford it. A large company, and I, I've worked with several, uh, most notably GE Healthcare is probably as large as I've, I, I will ever work at. Large companies can't always do that. They, they have pricing models. They have margin expectations that are almost fixed, uh, where a mid-market company can be much more agile and flexible in terms of their business, uh, business terms and conditions. So that, that's the way we try not to get lost focused on what we know we're looking for. Um, if someone comes to us and we know that this is a highly unlikely win, they're probably going to go to a large company. We're just participating in an overly cumbersome RFP process. We'll still do it because we want to meet and introduce ourselves to people within that organization. But we do it knowing from the get-go that it's a low probability event for us. Mm. Um, so that's that's how we filter through that. It's great to get your perspective on that actually and just see kind of how you you and your team navigate that situation and can filter out the opportunities, but actually also recognize the ones that are not right for, for my car. And 
you mentioned at the start you guys are based in Atlanta, Georgia, a place where I've been, had the pleasure of visiting a couple of times. I don't know Atlanta, Georgia from Atlanta, Georgia from a life science perspective specifically. So, and obviously appreciate you're from Boston, so this might be a difficult question. But is there a is there a vibrant life science community there in, in that part of the world? Is it a bit of a hub for? you know, CMOs and CROs, it's just, uh, I'm trying to rack my brains to see if we've actually had any guests <laughs> that are from Atlanta, Jordan, and I genuinely can't think of any. So I was just yeah. interested to know also your, how you have found it, right? As a Northeasterner, that, you know, what, what has been your um, perception of obviously the culture down there and working with people, you know, in, in Atlanta? Well, you know, that's another great point because, you know, if you, you're born and raised in Boston like I uh, am, uh, I was going to say was, but still am, uh, <laughs> you, you, you tend to think that the world revolves around the biotech community in Boston and in the, uh, in the Bay Area. Um, and of course, in the United States now, there are other hot zones of life sciences compared to just those two. But those were the two prominent ones back in the 1980s. Um, so what's up with Atlanta? Well, first of all, Atlanta is a very vibrant city and one that is going undergoing explosive economic growth. When you go to Atlanta, you'll see large buildings being built and corporate headquarters moving to Atlanta. Um, so in terms of talent for the non-life science positions, financial talent, marketing talent, uh, there, there's an abundance of, of labor there for that. But in addition, the Georgia Bio uh, organization is in place, and uh, they're actually very active. And there are there are a fair amount of companies that are in the life sciences uh, in the Atlanta area. So there's more of a labor pool than one would think. Uh, and we have not had a problem attracting people or finding people to fill positions because of that. We also have in Atlanta this almost the same structure that the Bay Area in in Boston has, and that's a strong university structure. So, you know, there, there's Emory uh, nearby, there's the Georgia Institute of Technology nearby, there's a smaller school just north of us, Kennesaw University, and we get a lot of our talent uh, right out of those universities for a variety of positions, people starting their careers just like I did back in the 1980s. So it has not been an issue at all, um, and, it's, and it's actually refreshing that it's a slightly different environment than, than what I was used to in, in Boston, especially the winters. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can imagine the difference. I think I went to, uh, it, I think it was pre-COVID, I went to Atlanta in uh, in February and we couldn't believe how warm it was. <laughs> we had to, you know, we'd take our jackets and then take them off when we went to Atlanta Zoo with the kids and that was it. That was a fun day out. And I have to, I'm going to switch gears slightly, you know, someone that's got your, three, four decades of managerial and leadership experience. And, you know, if you could, if you could go back, Mike, and, and give your 25-year-old self some advice, what, what would you say? Oh, my goodness, the 25-year-old me. Um, well, I, I think there's, there's one thing that I, that I did do, but it wasn't by design, but it turns out that it was a beneficial thing, and I still think it's valuable, so I'll, I'll include that. And that is when you're starting your career, when you're in your early to late 20s, um, learn as much as you can. Be a sponge. Uh, understand that you're at the point where you, you don't know everything. You might think you do because you did well in the university and now you're in the workplace and you've got a good job and you think you're a man about town. 
but but the reality is that there's an awful lot of knowledge and and understanding that needs to be achieved, um, not only technologically but all of the soft skills. So that's what I would say is uh, become a sponge. Uh, network. The other thing is network as much as you physically can. Um, some people frown on it, but networking is vitally important to career growth. The, these days, I see some of the younger people say, well, I'm looking for a job and they go to Indeed. Well, well, you know, well of course, Indeed's a source uh, or LinkedIn. And LinkedIn is a source as well. But when someone is hiring someone for a, a responsible position, there's no better thing than to have some level of credibility from a referral, especially a referral with some notoriety that says, I worked with so-and-so and I trust them. They did a good job for us. I think you should speak with them. So I would say networking is also uh, something that I would highly advise. Terrific advice there. And I could not agree with you anymore, specifically around obviously never stop learning, but also just the networking piece. I think it is a genuine superpower for people to be able to network and, you know, get referrals and all that type of thing. And you're right. You know, if someone approaches you and says, Hey, so-and-so I you know, can recommend them for a job, that endorsement takes them right to the top of the pile versus all the applications. So I think that's a really valuable piece of advice there that you shared with the, with the listener today. And I suppose similar type of thing, you know, what, what were the biggest mistakes that you made? If you look back, Mike, and, you know, I love what you said there, that you, you know, you, you did, you don't know everything in your twenties. Are there any particular memories or experiences that, you know, you, you made a mistake or you got something wrong and that's actually given you, that's been maybe a really positive learning in the longer term where you've, something hasn't gone quite to plan. Oh, uh, we, we don't have enough time to list more mistakes. Um, <laughs> There, there have been a lot of mistakes. Um, I, I think in terms of career growth, if, if you were focusing on that for a moment, I would say that at some point in my career where I was, I was clearly gaining some success in terms of doing what I do fairly well in the eyes of others, um, I would take on jobs that I probably shouldn't have taken on. Um, let me draw an analogy. Um, I like to use sports sometimes to, to make the point. Um, if you're a great coach and you've taken a team to the playoffs or perhaps a championship, and then someone offers you to become coach of the worst team that ever played, um, and you think to yourself, well, I'm just so good that I could become coach of the worst team that ever played, and we too will win a championship, and it's probably only going to take a season. Um, th those are the kinds of mistakes that I made. Um, an organization needs to have certain elements to it that are, exist. They don't have to be perfect, but they need to exist to give you a fighting chance to be successful. So I would say to the younger folks out there, uh, be careful where you jump from. The grass is not always greener on the other side of the fence. Oh, well, I mean, that's, that, I could not agree again more, and especially don't jump for money because that generally is not always the best thing for your career. And uh, yeah, I appreciate your candidness and honesty on that. And I just wanted to re rewind back to something you said earlier, which really um, I put a little asterisk by on my notes because I thought it was interesting. When you when you went to my car, you talked about the phases of um, kind of rebuilding and revitalizing, and you used the word um, kind of studying. So you obviously take time to study, and obviously this is 
one of several gigs that you've done and had a similar type of process and you mentioned your playbook when you're when you study a company are there any red flags that you see you know when you walk into a business or you spend say six months there are there red flags that you're looking for that to tell you something's not quite right or flip side are you are you also looking for um white flags or whatever whatever the right analogy is about actually something's really good in here i'm just really interested because i imagine you've seen irrespective of the businesses i imagine you see similar themes and the older you get and the more experience you see them quicker maybe well yes there are um however before i state what some of them are it's it's interesting when i look back at some of the assignments that i've been asked to do each one was different. Uh, after you study the organization, what worked in company A does not necessarily mean it'll work in company B. So there is not a playbook that you can say, there you go, no matter where you go, tiers page one through 10, just implement these 10 things and you're off and running. It, it, it depends. Uh, one organization I was at, uh, I always worry about people in organizational structure and the ability to execute a plan. Now that's kind of an obvious one, no matter where you go. But that particular organization was doing all of that. Everything seemed to be good, well-qualified people. Um, but when we looked at what was wrong with that organization, it, we, we discovered there was 30 to 40% of the instruments that were being sold would be returned. And they would repair them and send them out again, and they would end up being returned. And we looked at the why, and it turned out that the design process of that instrument was a fantastic instrument, by the way but it was uh, designed so rapidly for a completely different purpose by a very different team who was no longer with the company, they really didn't finish their job. And all we needed to do when we paradoed the failures that were resulting in the returns was fix three or four things in the design. So we focused on those three or four things and the returns went from 30 to 40% down to five to 10. So that, that was a a, an analysis and a red flag that had nothing to do with people and execution. It was about the product integrity. Um, so each place you go, you study it and you'll find out there's probably a different reason uh, or a different um, barrier holding you back or the organization back from, from being more successful than it may already be. So that, that's the approach that's taken. And, and I could go on about each one of them and, and what was sometimes it's technology Sometimes it's a great um, technology, but the market is just not there. No, I'm glad we um, got we, we kind of used your experience there to get some of that because it was that's so fascinating. Some of the insights that you've just provided. So thank you for that. Five minutes left. Final couple of questions, which I'm kind of gonna roll in into one. I've been kind of putting these off until the end. So you've obviously talked about the kind of not quite the pivot you guys have made, but the revitalization work that you've done at MyCart and the, the, the growth in the market. I noticed that you guys specialize in pediatrics and geriatric kind of uh, therapeutic areas as well, which is really interesting to me. And so let's talk about trends and what's going on in the market and what are you guys seeing? It's something our listeners really get a huge amount of value from. And obviously you've talked about more complex dosage forms and formulation and what's driving some of that you know any predictions you've got from the future appreciate it. i've just given you about 10 questions in one mike but i suppose you know if you want to wax lyrical about what you're seeing in the market and where you think it's going to go uh we'd we'd absolutely love love your thoughts on that sure 
Well, in the small molecule space, there is a, a, a phenomenon that's starting to occur that had been talked about for some time, but now we're seeing evidence of it actually happening. And it basically starts this way, and that the old way of doing business as a CMO or CDMO no longer works. The old way was uh, get a project, price the project, execute the project, be paid, and move on to the next project. Uh, sounds blatantly obvious, but what's different? What's challenging that? The prescription drug prices and the political will to reduce prescription drug costs to the general population is driving a whole host of new behaviors. Um, some companies don't know how to react to them. Others are starting to react to them. One thing that we see that's going on that will be a big challenge for all of us is the pressure that's being put on the storefront pharmacies. The, the old model from the drug distributors of brick and mortar stores in all of our neighborhoods uh, that we all know and we all frequent, and with the impulse selling of buying chocolates, gift cards, and everything else, by the time you get to the pharmacy counter, that is being challenged in a very, very serious and now organized way. You're seeing Amazon challenge it, Walmart challenge it, uh, Mark Cuban's new company, people talk about that a lot because he has brand recognition from his name, but he's really not the inventor of this model. That's the direct-to-customer, eliminate-the-middleman uh, business model that's happening. And that's going to have a significant effect on the CDMOs as well. So there, there's an opportunity for companies like us to manufacture drugs on a cost plus basis and, and still do well, and then ship that drug directly to the customer who's ordering it. The customer will probably not order it directly from a mic cart. They may order it through the Cuban database or the Walmart database uh, or, or some of these other larger companies. So the digitalization of the prescription drug business is going to have a profound effect just as Amazon did with the large box stores for appliances and televisions and everything else you want to buy these days. You can get almost anything from Amazon. So, so that's probably the biggest um, trend that we see happening. Um, the, along with that is the uh, reliance on offshore manufacturing. Uh, we've all known that it's been there, but the pandemic has really brought it to light. And we are now seeing evidence at my cart, so I'm sure others are too, of European companies and people in the APAC region coming to the United States and companies like us saying they need U.S. presence. They're trying to get ahead of the potential legislation that's in Congress now, uh, not necessarily passed, but I'm, I'm told there are over uh, a couple of dozen of uh, bills on the floor for, and most of them have bipartisan support. So something's bound to happen where legislation would require perhaps import taxes on drugs that are coming into the U.S. or certain critical medicines that the U.S. population needs and other countries do too, to be manufactured here. The so-called in-country, for-country model. If that happens, the existing people who are enjoying that market share today aren't just going to walk away. They're going to try to plan for it, just like BMW makes cars in, in uh, the Carolinas. Toyota moved here many, many years ago, makes cars in the U.S. 
It's the same phenomenon. It just hasn't happened in drugs, and it's about to. That's excellent. I was uh, there's two really fascinating trends that you've just talked about there. Obviously, the onshoring one and the impact that has. But I was really fascinated to hear um, your thoughts on the digitization and the kind of cost plus model of potentially a, a world where CDMOs will supply direct to companies effectively therefore missing out um you know typical pharmacies and, and that type of thing which is uh which we've seen in other industries and so i think our space is certainly ripe for digitization and in uh you know and change so um unfortunately mike we are out of time which is a real shame because i have learned a huge amount in the last 40 minutes uh talking to you today so Thank you so much for being a guest on on Molecule to Market. What a what an absolute pleasure! And I'm sure our listener has stayed right to the end of this episode because they've probably got some real golden nuggets, both in terms of leadership and, but also industry trends as well. So you know, congratulations on your career success and obviously the great work that you're doing at MyCart. Well, thank you. It was uh, great fun, and if we can do this again on a different topic, uh, we're more than happy to participate. I will definitely hold you to that. Take care. Thanks, Mike. Alrighty. Thank you. Hi again. Thanks so much for tuning in to Molecule to Market. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. You can find more shows on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen. Get in touch with us on our website, moleculetomarketpod.com, and follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter, and we will see you again next week. You're listening to Molecule to Market, where we go inside the outsourcing space of the global drug development sector. The podcast for professionals working in the pharma and biotech contract services space. Molecule to Market is sponsored and funded by Remarketing, an international content, digital and design agency that helps companies get noticed, raise profile and generate leads in life sciences.